0: to the realm of critical analysis, critical strangeness, critical mass, and cretinous humor. Fasten your convictions. Down for a bumpy ride. And welcome to the Poly Schismatic Reprobate Hour. Here with a face for radio and a voice for silent film, I'm Dan the Demented, and joining me this season are the missing links, Danny Shade, Hera Flea, and a number of others. On this show, we advocate unspeakable obscenities such as freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, open communication, and personal responsibility. If critical examination of the issues you hold dear offends you, don't firebomb the internet. Don't send in Islamic extremists to assassinate us, and don't pray for us, just switch to another podcast. Hello, this is Dan the Demented, owing to the fact that I just wrote 13,500 words in one day, and I'm pretty thrashed. I'm not going to give you a fancy intro this week, but uh, just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't listened to the first half of the Richard Carrier interview on Ancient Science, you must go back, listen to it, it'll give you context for this one. Last time we dealt with the Greeks, this time we deal with the Romans. So, um, here
1: you go. (laughs) <laughs> um, okay, so Rome supposedly made no scientific advances, right? Um, that's what he's claiming. Uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> I'll just skip to Ptolemy. Uh, I'll talk about some of the other guys in a minute because we're, we're on that track right now. Ptolemy, okay. Ptolemy, one of the greatest mathematical scientists in the ancient world, achieved the highest level of advance in several fields, um, astronomy being one of them. He, he improved on Hipparchus' theories so much that he could tell you like if you give him a latitude and longitude, which also was something the Romans invented, he could tell you whether you would see an eclipse and how visible it would be and whether it be a, a 20% wow. eclipse, a one-fifth eclipse or a full eclipse or whatever. Wow. So he, that's how accurate this was. And I think – And this it? is I, without I telescopes? Out. This without. is without telescopes. This is an important thing because using, they're using data recorded over hundreds and hundreds of years. And when you have data points that far apart – you can do the averages out and you actually eliminate a lot of error, so you can actually get a theory that 's more accurate than your instruments in a sense because mm. you know because a lot of the errors of the instruments are washed out over time you know right. if, if you 've got observations three hundred years apart, you know you, you, that you 're going to get a more accurate average figure for the motion of a planet than you would with any instrument there 's
0: something else that that 's remarkable about this from the pr- from the perspective of anyone who 's studied the way that, um, say, the Egyptians handled history or that a lot of other ancient societies of the medieval Christians handled history is the remarkable degree of textual continuity that there was research available over this many years for people to have access to. That's something that we don't see again anywhere in the world except in China and then in post-Enlightenment Europe.
1: That's right, yeah. Uh, Well, going back to Hipparchus, Hipparchus had about, uh, before his time, about three or four hundred years of Babylonian records mm-hmm. that he was using, of eclipse records and things. Because if you have eclipses, you've got tracking data for the position of the moon uh, over, you know, all right. the time. So he was able to do lots of things, and positions of the planets in the zodiac and so forth. But yeah, so they had these, they were getting records from abroad, They were you know, Babylonian records, Egyptian records. Mm-hmm. They had their own records, the Greeks and the Romans were collecting records, and they were keeping these records over hundreds and hundreds of years. And Ptolemy himself could actually go through and look at these, these records uh, as they were transmitted to him. Uh, but, so Ptolemy is infamous. People mock Ptolemy for his epicyclic theory. Right. Uh, In reality, his theory makes sense in two respects. One is he didn't have a theory of gravitation, so how else would you explain? He used a theory of symmetry, that the universe must work on principles of symmetry, which is what scientists
0: use today. He was a a mathematician, and all math is based on things summing to zero. And that theory is not, uh, you were saying, scientists still use it today. It's one of the basic, um, basic contentions of why the universe exists, is that the universe began to exist and will end, and thus it sums to zero. (laughs) It's it's one of the serious cosmological theories that's being debated right now.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, um, with with regard to Ptolemy, um, he innovated with this theory to get it hyper-accurate. I mean, he could predict, like, the position of Mars accurate to within a hair's breadth, practically uh, 25 years in advance. So he was a very, very accurate system of calculation. But to do this, he allowed the planets to move at inconstant velocities. This is an innovation of significant import. Mm -hmm. And using off-center orbits with the epicycles. And when you actually, when you look at the epicycles and you actually track out the actual path of the planet, you know, if you ignore the epicycle itself, you just track the path of the planet, it's an elliptical orbit, At inconstant velocities. So he's already halfway to Kepler. More than halfway to Kepler. And and it's interesting to note that Copernicus found this disgusting. He thought it was absurd that you would have inconstant velocities and that the earth wouldn't be at the center of the orbits so copernicus everybody praises copernicus for going heliocentric but in reality he destroyed the two most important innovations that ptolemy had right. which is why his system Kepler had to restore which is why his
0: <laughs> system wasn't adopted that's right because oh, it was yeah, it no. wasn't useful the, the whole the whole reason that, uh, that's that right. he yeah, wanted to be able to do accurate, that yeah was because you needed to be able to predict the motion of the sun the moon and the planets in order to be able to tell when to plant your crops in order to be able to tell when the best shipping seasons were and that sort of thing. That's right, yeah. And t- and Copernicus's theory was useless f- for all That's the right, things yeah. that you actually needed a theory for <laughs> in in that historical context. Yeah. yeah.
2: So it's so, so that you're saying they were actually being good scientists by rejecting yeah, uh, that theory. Exactly. Even yeah. though he was right in a way. Yeah. Like, I mean, in it, in
0: light of what they knew at the time.
1: Yeah, and when you look at Galileo, how Galileo is finally arguing for heliocentrism, he has data that the ancients didn't have. Right. And it, that's the important thing. That's why it's the turning point. Is Galileo before Galileo, heliocentrism wasn't necessarily the best theory. Actually, it's when the data was starting being to being gathered, starting being starting to be gathered, by. Um, the telescope mainly uh, right, they're the getting sunspots for example sunspots the and see, moons seeing, of jupiter right seeing and seeing the shadows of the moons of jupiter being cast uh, onto jupiter right, itself and, and the phases of venus mm-hmm. and so on they they're getting this this data that collectively made more sense and when you combine that with what the heliocentrists were arguing even in the ancient world heliocentrism starts to look more plausible right. and that that's one of the things uh, it's important to note. And anyway, so Ptolemy made these advances, tremendously complicated, impressive advances in astronomy, but that's not all he did. He also did optics. He studied refraction and reflection, get, trying to develop – he was looking for mathematical laws to explain refraction and reflection. He's the first to develop an index of refraction that refract, things refract differently in different materials. Yes.
0: I'm a computer graphics artist.
1: Mm-hmm. We still use Ptolemy's index of refraction. Watch, well, it's it's been or, in, or it, it's been improved since his time. Since uh, then, he the the equation is more complicated than he expected mm-hmm. because the uh, it's based on uh, trigonometry. So it actually the degree of refraction changes more at certain angles than, it, than, than gotcha. others. Uh, he did, hadn't gotten there yet, but he's the first to actually start mapping out that, okay, it refracts differently in glass than in water. It refracts mm-hmm. differently in air. What, and what's so,
2: the uh, life expectancy of someone like that? It just seems like he was so busy. Like, yeah. how, how could one guy do all this yeah, stuff? Yeah. Did well, they well, live these to guys 30? were clearly,
1: you know, these were geniuses. Um, life expectancy for an elite at the time I mean, sur- assuming you survived long enough to be an educated scholar, so you know if you, you survive puberty, uh, your life expectancy could be in the vicinity anywhere from fifty to eighty years. Um, oh, okay. And a lot of these, these bad, great then. geniuses probably lived to sixty or seventy in that vicinity. Mm-hmm. Galen himself, I think, uh, lived to eighty-three. or And something Archimedes like that. lived to I think sixty-two. Was it that he was finally killed? Um, it's yeah, something like that. But of course, he wasn't killed by old age. Right, right. <laughs> and they and they usually start younger too, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Galen was starting his surgical work at 16, I think. He finished medical school and, and was out wow. you know, gaining fame as a great surgeon at the age of 16. Um, Ptolemy almost certainly was as well. Um, but anyways, yeah. so he's studying refraction and reflection and trying to develop mathematical laws to explain how things refract and reflect. In his refraction studies, and unfortunately we're missing the last book of it, uh, but right where he starts to talk about convex and concave lenses... Yes. really yes he start, Wh- He's you're measuring yes me. he's measuring refraction through curved surfaces right where he starts talking about it so we know he's talking about it that's where the manuscript cuts off and we're missing oh. the last part of the
0: book <laughs> so we don't know if he actually got to inventing a telescope or a microscope well or he, he
1: was on his way I mean a telescope isn't as simple a device as people think I mean a telescope I mean they had refracting and reflect refracting lenses for hundreds of years before they figured yeah, out that what, you could make a telescope be, out of Because all you need to do to make a rudimentary
0: telescope is hold one lens at arm's length and another lens of the
1: right that's shape right. At, near your but eye. The key thing is the right shape because you have okay. to have the focal length of the lens has to reach the alternative lens. Of course, you right. can do it with reflecting mirrors too, which is a, a reflecting right. telescope. Uh, but um, it's that's the problem is you have to get them polished just right to get... The refraction angles, right? So you, that have you to can know, get focused, and, and you move. have to even f- think that you should do this. I mean, why would right. that even occur? If, if you trust the histories, where the first guy who developed a telescope, it, he didn't invent it. It was kids playing with lenses, just joking around playing with lenses. Really? He accidentally made one, <laughs> and then he said, "Oh, I could make money off of this," and he sold it to Napoleon's armies. I think there's something like not Napoleon. Uh, he sold it to uh, whoever the, it was the somewhere whoever the, in the Dutch. It long was, before Napoleon, it was, it was, it was up was, in
0: up in Holland, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, but I think he was selling it to whoever was. Marching around the world at that okay. time, I don't remember who it was, but uh, in Charlemagne. It was a little late for Charlemagne. No, no, much later. Yeah, much later. It's uh, we're talking fifteenth uh, century, I think. Uh, okay, or, it's too early for Leopold. Um, I don't remember I, my 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 Holy Roman. Yeah, I'm Emperor's I'm not bad. spot on on that period either. But that, that's the that's the story, quote unquote. Right. I don't know uh, if that's just the story or if that's actually what right. happened. Uh, but <laughs> the point is, is you know, they had they had glasses. For example, they had spectacles for hundreds of years before anyone thought, oh, we you know. You mm-hmm. can make a telescope out of this. And then, of course, the microscope is the same thing. It's not right. an obvious invention. But nevertheless, they knew that you could get things to magnify through lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ptolemy was trying to figure out a mathematical theory of this. So you could say, had things not gone to hell in a handbasket after Ptolemy, the telescope probably would have been invented within one or two hundred years of his time had science progressed so uh, as it had been before. Him.
0: So I've got to ask then, things going to hell in a handbasket now... Um, Gibbon blamed it on Christianity. Right. That's not correct. And the Christians blame it on the Romans being too interested (laughs) in gladiatorial contests. Yeah. Um, Their immorality in general. Right. Their immorality. My understanding is that it was due to an unsustainable economic problem in the Roman Empire, which was that they got so good at conquering new territories and acquiring new slaves  … that when they ran out of places they could easily conquer, they didn't have the influx of cheap labor in order to keep the economy going.
1: Yeah, that that's not that's not the true either. Theory okay. either. I mean whether there was, for example, I mean we have the same problem where, where if you have shrinkage and enlargements of the mm-hmm. labor force, an economy can absorb that. Actually, right, so right. That, that's not really a plausible theory so what, for anything.
0: So what? was it that actually well, that, that it, kicked Rome I mean, really, over into its really descending it, yeah, spiral? It
1: was, it was the third century. Third century A.D. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what happened was uh, the real underlying problem was the lack of a a, a well-formed constitution. They didn't have peaceful succession of power. Right. There was a civil war every time an emperor died. Um, Yeah, unless there was one period, the, the period of five great emperors where the emperor's didn't have their own native son, so they adopted the best man for the right, job, and that was the Julio Claudian right. dynasty. No, no, it was after no? that. After it, that, okay. no, it starts with Trajan. Uh, oh, okay. It's, so it's Trajan, Hadrian, and on uh, to Marcus Aurelius is the last one. Okay. that's the greatest period. Uh, before that, yeah, you had uh, dynasties, and so the dynasty created stability. Mm-hmm. But when there was no son left, or uh, the last guy in the dynasty was such a degenerate that then you right. have And what, ha- Yeah, and what
0: happened after, after Nero, they went and they killed his heirs so that there wouldn't well, be yeah. another Claudian on yeah, the throne. Yeah, but, but that's the
1: case where <laughs> Nero was such a degenerate or such an awful leader. Right. You, you basically, you have this situation where the son of the son of a great leader, you're, you're, you're getting re- regression to right. the mean where the leaders are getting worse and worse. So it's, <laughs> it's past, a bad system. It's regression a, past the yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad, bad way to do it. Because eventually if you go by primogeniture, if you go by birthright, you're guaranteed to get a shitty leader, and that's going to cause problems. Right,
0: because the the, the things that make the original leader great are things that the that children don't have to go through because – Well, there's
1: that as well, but also just statistically the odds that the child of this guy is going to be the best man for the job right. is small. Whereas during the period of five great emperors, they were looking for the best man for the job. So the pool, so then they of would opportunity, opportunity – they would, adopt, they would right, adopt him into the family right, to create and so, a exactly, create a dynasty. Exactly. They would create a gotcha. dynasty. So it would always be the dynasty of the best man. And when you use the whole population as your gene pool, That's in a an sense. interesting theory of dynastic yeah. meritocracy. I like that. I'd... Yeah, so that, that actually worked. The only problem is is that uh, Marcus Aurelius had a living son. And so instead of adopting someone to replace right. him, he let him take over, and Commodus was a terrible leader. Right. This is a, a system that's inherently unstable. So what eventually happened was you had one dynasty collapse. The Severn dynasty collapsed mm-hmm. in about 235. You had the last Severn, guy of the Severn dynasty... And then you had a civil war, which would tend to happen. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that this civil war didn't end. It kept going and kept going and kept going. You had about 30 or 40 emperors in the period of 50 years, a constant state of civil war over that period of 50 years, empire-wide. Now, and if then, you imagine, if you and, think of well, our civil that, and war. And that ended with the rise of Constantine, right? Uh, well, it ended with or Diocletian. Diocletian, okay. Which is important. That's an important point with the Christianity issue, which I'll get to. But, um, if you imagine our civil war, the American Civil War, imagine mm-hmm. that that had lasted 50 years oh. with constant assassinations Th- of the There wouldn't of be anything left of the like, continent. Yeah, the president's constantly being assassinated and replaced. Like, So you have a new president like every few years. Right, with, the, kind, the kind of
0: shit that happened in, in Europe in the late Middle
1: Ages. Right, so you, you're, it would be hugely devastating to the society. It would be extremely difficult to recover mm-hmm. – Especially if you don't know what the right thing to do is to recover from that. Right, what because happened, every
0: time a new emperor comes in, the rules change for how the economy works because well, they institute is, their own laws, their own taxation policies. This is where it gets. Sort of this thing. is
1: where it gets really bad. At the end of this fifty-year civil war, um, up, during this period, the currency was running on a fiduciary value, so they actually had fiduciary currency. Right. Fiduciary value means that the value of the coin is not the actual metallic value of the coin. It's the the coin itself has inherent intrinsic value based on how valuable the coin itself is. Right. So like, that's like our dollars; they're made of paper, they're not really worth right. anything, but they have a fiduciary value that, that right. people want the dollar. Then it supply right. And it's, it's a scorekeeping system. Right. Yes, it's, it's based money. on how much demand there is for the dollar. Right. Invents the value for the dollar, which is how everything works. But uh, when you have the whole currency system that way, it is vulnerable. To loss of faith in the currency. And that right. happened so that you had a massive depression. The value of the currency dropped hugely. So that you so have Similar a massive to what depression. happened in the Weimar Republic. Well, yeah. And imagine you had fifty years civil war here immediately followed by the Great Depression. Oh boy. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> United States would be done for. I mean, you would know. Yeah. I mean it, Well, you, we've
0: seen what happens.
1: That's how you get uh, Nazi Germany. Well, yeah. <laughs> Good. And that's exactly. how we got that's exactly how we got Nazi that's, Germany. Yes, by yes. By yes way. Well, that's exactly what happened in the Roman period. Diocletian took over at this point with an absolute iron fist. And he basically created the Roman Empire on the model fascism, as we think right. of it now, where it was – he was a god to be worshipped as a god, a mm-hmm. huge separation between classes, uh, complete absolute – there's death penalty for everything. Um, right. And one of the worst things he did, which he thought was the best thing he'd do, but of course we know economically it's the worst thing, is he created fixed price controls. Oh, that'll do In it. order to try and prevent the plummeting currency, he created draconian price controls mm-hmm. where it was execution. You would be killed for violating the price controls. So – uh, this is oh, the worst boy. thing you can do for yep. an economy, right? So, basically, you you set up a, a terrible degenerate society that, that's it's the worst <laughs> possible design of a society to have. And what happens well, after he set up this great fascistic sucky society? Mm-hmm. A Christian emperor succeeds him. So, right. <laughs> so you have Constantine, Constantine. And the Christians inherited the fascistic system said, hey, this is great. We can use this system to support our religion and our church. And so you had basically medieval fascism. Yeah. And, and, and contrary,
0: contrary to the popular myth, Constantine was not a deathbed convert. He was raised a Christian.
1: Well – yeah, I mean one can debate as to how serious he was, but right. he, he understood the value of the church as a means of power mm-hmm. so that he understood that, well, he was the one who started transferring right, wealth right, from right. the right no, temples to no, I mean, the you, churches. You
0: can't, you, you, you can't tell you know, the, the condition of the man's heart. That's but, right, yeah. But yeah. He, was raised by, uh, he was raised in the Christian tradition. That's and right. Re- whether he was devout himself or not, yeah. he knew the church from his childhood. That's right, and politically he threw his his,
2: his
1: weight behind that's it. That's right, he threw his, well, whole, his whole plan well, Richard, behind it.
2: You said that they inherited the That's fascist right. society, and then you said the Christians took hold of that to use. Um, didn't you say before that it was the other way around? that the?
1: Well, no. This You've got to remember that the damage has already been done. It's the pagans that have screwed things over basically at this point. Uh, not okay. because they're pagans. It has nothing to do with religion. That's one thing. It's, it's a big red herring. Religion had nothing to do with the collapse of the Roman Empire. It had nothing to do with any of this. It was just bad government, lack of a constitution, and – They had an oral constitution that they weren't following. This is one thing. Violating the constitution wantonly for personal gain. Right, and that
0: started with the um, appointment of Julius Caesar as dictator for life. It really did, yeah. Now, my Roman history is a little shaky, but if I recall Roman law correctly, the first major violation of the constitution by the Senate was the appointment of Caesar as dictator for life rather than than dictator for X number of years, which was allowed under the constitution. Yeah,
1: yeah. You're right. Of course, he was immediately assassinated. But (laughs) Right. (laughs) But so, the precedent so the, was yeah, there. Right, now. Yeah. It's, and then Augustus is the one who really dicked around oh, with the yeah. constitution. But, um, but and it's then amazing it, it lasted 400 years after that. Yeah. Well, they were very smart about it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't idiots, and they weren't. You know, the, the, when you had good emperors, it worked right. reasonably well. I mean, there were still problems that needed right. fixing. Right.
0: But, but benevolent dictatorship is right. um, you know.
2: Um, but yeah, it, it worked.
1: It was a doomed system, though. I mean, it, but so Christianity that,
2: inherited the doomed system. That's right. Inherited, and, and, and they and didn't do anything to change it. Made it worse.
1: Okay. So to give you an example. Constantine Constantine basically created the concept of the peasant. He passed a law that said all free farmers that are renting land are now bound to the land. They cannot leave it. They cannot change jobs, and they have to give a certain oh, amount man. of their wealth to the landowner. Well, that, that right there guarantees yes. the fall of Rome. Yeah, the, the the irony of this is that this was a law that was supposed to reinforce the freedom of the common man. Where, right. We're going to end slavery by making… Slaves <laughs> of the peasants, right? Right. But, so it actually but doing, ended yeah, but, yeah.
0: but doing that also economically made, it's disastrous. Well so. it's not just disastrous economically, but it's disastrous politically because one of the reasons that the Vandals, the Huns, and the Visigoths were able to roll over Rome like they were was because the peasants in the outlying land uh, in the outlying farms didn't oppose them like they That's used right. to. Yeah, exactly. In, in the height of the Roman Empire, you didn't just have the army defending. You had every citizen in the world would pick up arms and fight against the en- encroaching enemy. But by the time the Visigoths, <laughs> the Huns and the Vandals rode through, they were yeah. like, "Please, yeah. help." <laughs>
1: Give us a better deal on where are yeah, are, basically. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that's another example of how this sort of fascistic control of society was increased even under Christian mm-hmm. hands. And then, of course, by the end of the 4th century, the Christians were passing laws that said everybody had to be a Catholic now right. um, under pain of death or exile or confiscation mm. of property or whatever the case may be. And this is the time at which um, the, the Nag Hammadi texts get buried. And, right around – yeah, and, Yeah. Okay. exactly. Um but yes, once you have peasants and you have landlords that are no longer beholden to governments except through loose alliances, what do you have? You right. have feudalism. Yeah, so, feudalism. Anyway, so that's the de- that's how that's the course of degeneration, and it, it really wasn't about religion per se. It was just the reason Christianity, the reason Constantine was a Christian and supported Christianity. Was was because it was one of these kinds of faith systems. It was systems. familiar and useful. Well, yeah, right. it was useful. It was one of these kinds of faith systems that made sense of the times, right. in a sense, of the degenerate times. But the religion before, under the first and second century Roman Empire, religion was based on reason and empiricism. Their the right. religion was, well, what could you prove to be true from the facts of the world, really? And it was about – your religion had to be inherently logical and based on evidence. It was a very radically different concept of religion. Right. Um,
0: well, until you got into the mysteries, and then the mysteries well, yeah. were the thoroughgoing rejection That's of right. reason in favor of mysticism.
1: Right. And mis- the mysteries were always sort of just sort of a side bet, essentially. Right. Like, like you know, <laughs> it's like I'll do the rational thing, but this, but just in case salvation. I'll get, some salva- I'll get right. a little bit of salvation in my pocket, just in case. Right. It's just when the the main system collapsed that the salvation in the pocket route became the primary route, rather right. than the sort of side bet. It became the thing. Um, and then, of course, you had, the, you had the explosion of more mystical pagan mm-hmm. religions and so on. But,
0: Which is why you can get people like Origen in the third century, who's obviously no intellectual slouch. Right. Who's very rational, is very good arguer. Um, yeah. And who's a Gnostic and a Christian at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Who will on one side argue that Genesis is mythical, and then on the other side castrate himself because Jesus said, become eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven.
2: <laughs> Good call.
3: Hello, this is Hera Flea, daughter of Hera Tick, bringing you this pre-Gothic edition of The Reprobate's News. A major manuscript find this week in Antakya, Turkey is causing unexpected problems across the world. The library buried under the ancient city of Antioch yielded a historian's treasure trove, including one scroll featuring, quote, illustrations and amusing anecdotes regarding the lives of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The scrolls allegedly detail the horrific escapades of emperors Tiberius and Caligula, including a number of events that later showed up in the works of Suetonius. This scroll, being signed as it was by the secretary of Emperor Nero, is raising doubts among some scholars over the villainous reputations of these two men. According to one radical scholar, It looks like Tiberius was just an ordinary guy who liked macrame and hang gliding, and that Nero blamed him for a lot of stuff that he did in order to preserve his own legacy. Controversy continues over its implications among conservative scholars. Rodney Stark is voicing concerns over the attestations of macrame in particular, saying... It's impossible. Nobody invented anything that useful for hanging plants until Christianity took over the Roman Empire and unleashed the scientific revolution. Men in white coats were seen by this reporter converging on Dr. Stark's house only minutes after his interview. And that's it for the Reprobates News. Send death threats to feedback at reprobateshour.com. And until next time, I'm Hera Flea, returning you to your normal group of crusty old rationalists
1: let's forget the downfall of things and get back to what the Romans did in the first two centuries A.D. Okay. Yes, the the Romans who didn't advance science at all. We've already talked about Ptolemy. (laughs) Uh, Here he's doing mathematical empirical physics with optics. He did it with harmonics. He built instruments to test harmonics. Uh, Cartography, he developed uh, conical projection. Uh, He developed systems of projection that are very similar to Mercator Mm -hmm. projection. Um, Um,
0: No, we're talking like a camera... I'm not familiar with Mercator
1: projection. Oh, oh, projection, uh, where it's... Taking a curved surface and representing it on a flat map. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, so do you, you say projection, s- and I'm yeah. thinking camera obscura. Well, it's, it's you're projecting the curved surface onto a flat, flat surface, and that's right. how. Yeah, and there's yeah. different ways to do that. There are different kinds. Like some will distort the continents, and some will not in different right. ways. Uh, he developed that, so you could write on, you could draw a map of the curved Earth on a flat surface. So he right. developed systems for that. Um, the most advanced, by the way, systems for that. And um, I should mention also, I mean, optics. He wasn't just doing reflection and. Uh, refraction. He was also studying things like he developed an instrument that could measure what the width of the human visual field was. Uh, He developed a system that could, that tested your color vision, for example. Um, I mean, he's doing lots of scientific instrumentation and experimental studies. So clearly important stuff here. That's Could he make a globe? Uh, Oh yes, he made a globe that actually had an instrument on it called a meteoroscope, which allows you to locate, to use a system of gears to locate any longitude or latitude on the globe. Oh, and then wow. And then measure the arc between that and another position on the globe. Uh, mm. So, yeah, yeah. So Wow. Right. These are advanced stuff. Oh, and I was going to mention the, the epicyclic theory. The right. reason he's using circles. Why? It's easier to make a geared computer using circles. So that's why right. it's easier to do a, an astronomical computer with epicyclic theory than it is with an elliptical... You know, right. a, a realistic elliptical model. So, right.
0: particularly in a time when you have to basically hand grind the gears, you right. don't have industrial
1: yeah. production where you
0: can prototype and stamp.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, even they, they, they did, did have primitive industrial they, they production. They did have. Well, they did have die cast metal, for example. Mm-hmm. But even the mold had to be hand carved or lathe, right. lathe carved or something. Obviously, I mean, they didn't have you know laser carved right. or anything. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, they could do that. But the yeah. the gears were usually, like you said, um, mm-hmm. hand notched. But. That's Ptolemy. Okay, that's astronomy. Let's go back one century before Ptolemy. You get Hero, Hero of Alexandria, first century uh, Roman in Alexandria, technologist, great engineer, one of the most famous engineers of the period. Uh, He wrote a great treatise on mechanics that only survives in Arabic um, and not complete, I think. Uh, He wrote treatises in pneumatics where he discussed uh, theories of the vacuum and theories of air pressure. Mm -hmm. Uh, He developed uh, more advanced clocks. They had water clocks that were... Much more sophisticated than you think, with systems of gears and water pressure regulation and so forth. He developed robotics. They had robotic theaters that right. would, would act out an entire play mm-hmm. through a program, and you would program them using systems of cogs and sensors. What right. kind of robots? Uh, like were, marionettes that were they were driven automated. by weights and yeah. Uh, yeah like he, 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 one of his favorite systems was to use uh, seeds, um, like like right, uh, right, like, uh, grain. Uh, like lentils or yeah. something. They have like maybe you know. 100 pounds of lentils in a tube that holds then, up a drop weight that's right it holds a drop weight and then you, you open the bottom and the lentils fall out at a fixed rate and the weight goes down and that weight pulls cords and that cord that mm-hmm. cord pull, pulls all of these other wheels and stuff in uh, programmed succession mm-hmm. so then it's programmed have, like a player piano with right, pegs on, right on exactly. the... so it's like a big rube goldberg contraption exactly yeah with a system of, of pegs and wires and so forth so that uh, it really... goes through a whole play, and it would do a five-act play with the doors. And the curtain would be drawn five times or whatever. And the well, they refilled the characters rain, would come yeah. on stage, do their little thing, and then leave. Uh, uh, fires would ignite spontaneously and go out, and <laughs> uh, doors would open and close. I mean, it, they were very sophisticated robotics. That'd things, be really
2: cool but, to see this recreated. Have you heard of one, any? He's the one. Uh, that there have been it? attempts
1: to yeah, recreate um, them, not as fabulously as we know he yeah. made them. But there it, again, have been some.
0: again, the BBC series "What the Ancients Did for
1: Us" recreates three different robotic designs yeah, that survived yeah. from this. Oh, wow. So he he did all of this stuff. This is clearly advanced technologically. He was talking about the scientific theory of all these things as well. And he, as far as we know, he's the first to develop um, the uh, law of least action to explain reflection. Because they they had already worked out, Euclid had already worked out the laws of refraction. I'm sorry, reflection. Mm -hmm. Like uh, angle of incidence equals uh, angle of reflection. Is that something something like uh, that? Something like that. But uh, they already knew the laws of reflection. Uh, He developed a theory to explain why. Those were the laws of reflection. Why are things reflected that way rather than some other way? Right. And the reason is the, the law of least action, which is light takes the path that is short. It requires the least amount of time, I think, is the mm-hmm. least amount of time to get to its destination. And if you work that out geometrically, it's, it's it, you, you end up right. with the laws of reflection. Um, so, here, so here we have scientific laws. We have scientists doing this sort of thing. Ptolemy, by the way, took that and explained refraction as also a law of least, uh, mm-hmm. of least action. Right. Because um, he he actually did argue that light travels slower in materials mm-hmm. than it, in certain materials, so that it, it travels at a different speed in glass. That's why it refracts differently in glass, right. which we now know to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why it refracts. So so here I mean, this, this is some pretty advanced science going on. Um, Dioscorides, uh, there's I heard there's one guy who's a famous uh, botanist, famous study, uh, famous historian of botany, history of botany, and he says that uh, Dios- Dioscorides was the most advanced pharmacological botanist and mineralogist of until about the 16th century. He says that that about about the 15th and 16th century, his manual on plants and minerals was the most advanced science on the subject up to that time. So here, this is a Roman, uh, and he talks specifically in his treatise about how you can't just rely on hearsay. You've got to go out, you've got to test these drugs, you've got to see them in in the field, you've got to see what they look like because they look different in different seasons. Uh, and so you, you, he's talking about empiricism here. So it's, it's very much an empirical, exploratory scientist. Um, and then Galen. I'll, I'll end with Galen. I mean, like I said, this is just a small selection of these guys. Oh, yeah. But uh, Galen, he did medical science more advanced than anyone up to the time. So he, he was dissecting and doing physiology and anatomy. He took Herophilus one further, and he pro- he his one of his specialties was the vocal system. He studied all the muscles and nerves responsible for speech and all, all the organs and everything from the, where it ends in the brain to all wow. the organs, the, the tongue, the lips, the, the, the larynx, everything. He studied all of that and did vivisection experiments on animals to show, to prove that voice comes from a specific center in the brain. And therefore, and because voice was associated with reason, and reason is the soul, therefore he, he reason conclusively. And he, he argues it against this this old philosopher who is still mm-hmm. maintaining that it's in the heart. And he uses this thorough dissection and vivisection experimental method to refute scientifically this philosophical position that the, the mind is in in the heart. I mean, this is clearly advanced science used to, mm-hmm. to you know kick the philosophers in the ass essentially. Right. Um, and one another area of his specialty was the renal system. He he's the first to prove how the kidneys functioned, or the basics of how the wow. kidneys functioned, and what they did, and and so on. Uh, through again, using vivisection experiments. And
0: again, this is stuff that wasn't rediscovered until the 19th century. Some of this. You know, I'm not sure about Galen 19th. because Galen was one of the most heavily preserved. but like uh, the fu- but but some of these things, the function of the renal system, the, the maybe. I, I don't parts I don't, don't know. Brain. Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't. That's not my area. Okay. That what how that particular evolved at that point. Uh, but I do know what was going on in the ancient world, and he was certainly far advanced in this. Um, muscles of the hand—that was, that was another one of his things. But he did this. He also did a, a treatise on plant physiology, where he's mm-hmm. trying to explain plant growth and plant metabolism. Right. That's lost. And It's a oh. great loss. Yeah. Was, what the hell? Um, he he dissected tons and tons of different kinds of animals. Unfortunately, a lot of the works he wrote specifically on them either he never got finished completing or. Are lost to us, but uh, we do he, we have him talking about it scattered throughout his mm-hmm. surviving works. So he's he's you know this is serious science that he's doing here. Um, anyway, that's Galen, and that's just the guys the ones I mentioned that we know a lot about. There were there were tons of other scientists whose works were completely lost uh, from the Roman period. I'll just mention a few: Menelaus in astronomy and hydrostatics was one of the most famous scientists of his era. We don't have a word from him. Uh, Apollodorus in mechanics. Uh, we have one tiny little treatise on siege. Uh, tactics, but he was a great architect and engineer. We have nothing that he wrote on that subject. Uh, Demosthenes wrote a treatise on the anatomy of the eye in the first century, which is something that is often claimed they didn't do in the ancient world. And Sostratus on so, zoology. Sostratus wrote right. a lot of treatises on animals and animal physiology. We don't have any of these things. Wow. So tons of science is getting done. So um, I think that pretty much puts the refutation on to... Yep. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. So the fall of the Roman Empire didn't actually fail to interrupt scientific progress no
1: absolutely uh clearly scientific progress was preceding a pace i mean there was great advances being made in the roman period great advances h- had been made in the hellenistic period after aristotle very impressive it's slower than the pace that we see from the scientific re- revolution on nevertheless mm-hmm. the pace is steady and, and right. impressive and so if had things continued in that direction you could see you could see hitting a point where you we'd do a hitting takeoff a point. point like it's, we exactly, did with the scientific revolution. Exactly, you could see it, the critical mass would tip over, You like you'd get the telescope. Once you get the telescope or yeah. the printing press or something like you that, know, when, you'd the yeah, telescope The
0: printing press, the microscope, then you've got the tools for an astronomical takeoff like we've had right, exactly. for the last 500 years. Well, I think
1: it's also a misnomer to assume it has to be in astronomy. Our scientific right. revolution was led in astronomy, but not really because there was also Harvey. Uh, there was also Boyle. Harvey was doing anatomy and physiology. Mm-hmm. He, went, he took Galen and went one further. Galen still had an incorrect theory of uh, circulation. Harvey took a system of experiments that Galen used on the renal system and applied it to the heart and discovered the modern nice. theory of circulation. So w- w- why couldn't there have been a Harvey in the 3rd century or the 4th century? There could have mm-hmm. been had things not you know, gone to hell. So why is it that you think um, the reason
0: that Stark claims he's advancing this thesis <laughs> is that the fact that Science arose only in the post-Christian West, and nowhere else in the world, or wherever else it arose, it was domesticated so quickly that it failed to change the culture like it did in China. And in China, they had the beginnings of their scientific revolution, and then it was contained by top-down edict. You know, they burned all the ships, and they said, well, you can do science, but you can't publish so so stark and 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 some other popular historians um and definitely apologetic historians see their as um see the fact that it came only in the post christian West right. as needing an explanation that's right that'll encompass um the fact that it flourished and then died in the Islamic world and that it never rose mm-hmm. in the east even though the East didn't fall as far as the west That's right yeah. or that um you know that the Chinese had all the tools for it, but they never actually did it yeah. So, why is it that? Well, that's
1: the thing is, whatever, you're right. You need a theory for that to explain why it happened that way. But that theory also has to explain why you have this thousand year gap, mm-hmm. more it's, than yeah, a thousand year this gap. This is true, um, which, which is the part the they theory ignore. Has to, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, suddenly it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you have to explain that as well. I mean, I think basically when you look, and I have been doing this, so you look mm-hmm. at the scientific work that starts appearing about the 15th century, mm-hmm. um, 15th century, 16th century it starts to look a lot like the 2nd century i mean it, the sorts of reasoning the sorts of arguments and debates the way they're going about things the values that they're pursuing so we start off very 200
0: similar. years basically
1: yeah. before we I, left off and while in my forthcoming book uh, the scientist in the early roman empire one of the theories that i develop is that science only flourishes it might not flourish at the same pace in all societies but it will flourish and continue to make progress eventually achieving a scientific revolution if the society or enough people in the society embrace certain scientific values and have the liberty to pursue them. What values are those? Um, well, curiosity has to be a moral good. You, it, mm-hmm. you have not only a moral good, but something worth pursuing. It, it, right. the, the, the results of curiosity and curiosity itself cannot be vilified as sinful or dangerous um, or, or neglected as unimportant. It right. has to be, this is a fundamental value. Uh, empiricism. You satisfy your curiosity by going and looking and seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to have empirical values where knowledge... Basically, the fundamental tenet of empiricism is that the facts trump the theories. That, mm-hmm. That's the authority, not, not my teacher, not this book, not God. The authority is what I can see and reconstruct in my lab or, or go out in the field and, and identify. It's the, the evidence is king, essentially, and, mm-hmm. and everything follows from the evidence. That's empiricism, and you have to believe that is a moral good all, as well. You have to right. think that's the way things have to be. Of course, to do that, you have to put the evidence above the existing authorities, and if the existing right. authorities don't like that... That's a problem. And the third value is belief in progress, the belief that you right. can make progress and that it's valuable. It's worthwhile mm-hmm. to make progress. And that's really
0: good. Yeah, and there was a dominant school of thought through medieval Christianity. It's very well articulated by Umberto Eco in a lot of his books because mm-hmm, yeah. he's a fabulous medievalist. Yeah, yeah. Um, that the search for knowledge is blasphemous by itself because it implies that God did not give us that which we need to know. Yeah. And that the best that a good scholastic can hope for is inspired recapitulation that recontextualizes the knowledge that God has given us into the current circumstance. That's
1: right, yeah. You already start to see this in Lactantius and Eusebius. Lactantius, end of the 3rd yes. century, Eusebius, early 4th century. I haven't read Lactantius, but it's definitely um, there in this Eusebius. Is, I, I'll have a whole chapter on this in my forthcoming book, but, uh, where it shows that they're specifically arguing that if God wanted us to know it, he would have told us already. Right. Uh, and if God hit it, obviously He hit it for a reason, so we shouldn't be looking. Mm-hmm. So it's right. just vain and, or it's and like
0: pointless. the the apocryphal story, which which isn't true, by the way, <laughs> um, about when um, when the Muslims burned the Library of Alexandria, which we don't know if they did. But the apocryphal story is that the um, Mm, that that the uh, the uh, was it a shaker? It was the caliph. The caliph Omar, I think. Yeah, you're right, caliph Omar. When when asked, you know, the library is burning. What what shall we do? He said, Well, if the books in there don't agree with the Holy Quran, obviously they deserve to be destroyed. Because they (laughs) contain knowledge that isn't true. And if they do agree with the Holy Quran, we don't need them.
1: That's right. So let it burn. (laughs) Now,
0: the story isn't true, but it's a very good...
1: um... Well, actually, I think... um, I don't know if... if There might be later versions of the story that you're relating. That's possible. The earliest versions of the story are they had seized the library. Mm -hmm. They asked the caliph, what do we do with these books? He, He... Issued that decree, like if if, right. if they agree with the Quran, we don't need them because we have the Quran. If they disagree, then they don't need them because they're blasphemous or whatever, right. uh, and therefore they are to be destroyed. And so they actually voluntarily went in, took the books out, and fed the baths, uh, oh, the heaters heer- of the baths. That's even worse. Uh, with with the books, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 the story. I oh. I think it's more likely to be true than I think some people give it credit. Okay, um, but like you said, we it's this is the dark ages. So it's right. very murky. Well, yeah. Software.
2: And you know that the sentiment or the whatever of uh willful ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just like, well, God, have you know, that that's still going on today with like intelligent design movement. It's sort of couched oh, and, yeah. oh, oh, we're boy. exploring, yeah. but really they're just trying to find <laughs> gaps and say, Oh, you know, obviously this couldn't have happened by accident. So God had his own reason for doing it. And it's, it's really the same sort of attack on science. Luckily it's not the mainstream, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, we're fighting against yeah, it. Yeah, we're exactly. hoping it doesn't um,
0: become the mainstream.
1: It uh, but Yeah, an- anyway, so that's the theory is that, that mm-hmm. whatever intellectual blocks, economic blocks, other things were getting in the way of reabsorbing and rechampioning these pagan values of curiosity, uh, empiricism, and progress, those were put on hold or, or – pushed down below other values. They gradually broke down. Even if they weren't denigrated, they just weren't taken up in the way that other values were pursued. Right. And a a lot of things happened
0: in the late Middle Ages that, you know, like the Black Death and like the invasion of the Mongols Mm -hmm. that literally cleared the ground of a lot of the old guard intellectuals.
1: Yeah, and then there's also um, the West started, was getting on a better situation economically right right when the East was collapsing. And at that time... A lot of manuscripts started filtering west. Right. Uh, and uh, of ancient science. Right. And so and then there
0: was the conquest right. of Toledo.
1: So that's which, but the whole thing of the Renaissance is a it's called the Renaissance because it's a rebirth of right. pagan values, literally. I mean the pagan values in art world and mm-hmm. in the science world are very much similar values. The yeah, idea and, that you would have a naturalistic realistic sculpture of a person that you understand anatomy you have to observe the world right that's, and this that's is an something empirical art right you know? and
0: this is something that christians that grow up in the west today don't understand mm. they don't they can't comprehend how it could possibly be at odds because they accept that the uh, who was it uh, i can't remember what Theologian propounded it originally, but there was the, the two books argument that God wrote two books, nature and the Bible. Mm-hmm. But that was an accommodationist That's argument. Right. Yeah, totally. drawn in the face of overwhelming defeat. If you go into um, some of the stuff, uh, some of the buildings in Florence and you look at the murals and th- that were painted at the height of the Renaissance, they are not Christian. They are deeply pagan. <laughs> they are deeply anti-Christian. Christian themes appear in positions of ridicule. And it was the syncretism that brought them back together for a period of two or three hundred years before they blew apart again in the 19th century was an act of desperation by Christianity to stay relevant. It was not something that grew naturally out of the theology. It was something they found room for.
1: Yeah, and, and that's an important point to make is that Christianity is compatible with scientific values as long as you actually make it so. And and, right. and that entails things for your theology and and your, the way you're going to conduct mm-hmm. your life as a Christian, uh, and if you and there are certain people who don't like changing Christianity that way, right? Not because they're anti-science, but because they don't like what you have to do to absorb and adopt those right. values. And fundamentalism grows out of a reaction against that. That's true. Yeah. Um, so what I see is I see that the fifteenth century is about. Is the, the society is picking up where it had left off in the second century mm-hmm. and so um i think there are other factors there that made it accelerate faster than it had been in the past but nevertheless the, the reason for the gap is that these values had been gone underground and were reabsorbed and re championed and and that's really the story and it it isn't necessarily a question of religion causing either mm-hmm. religion is just really a bystander that this sort of gets accommodated one way or the other. Right. It, it is the source of the values against science. It's also the source of the values for science. And it's, it's a, question a question of question. how they prioritize internally. Yeah. Well, and largely since you know religion isn't true anyway, you can make right. it up to be anything you want. So right. whatever values you want to champion, you just have to twist your religion to fit that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I don't see religion as such as the problem. It's the certain values, right. the epistemological values that you adopt that are the problem. Mm-hmm. And you can support those values with a religious argument, which makes right. religion a problem. Yeah, or just, you can support it right. in another yeah, way. Ju-
0: just like a, a literal reading of the Bible gives you a pro-slavery theology and a progressive reading of the Bible gives you an anti-slavery theology. Exactly,
1: right. Yeah, that's a good, exa- that's a good analogy. Um, yeah, so let's see. Uh, there were other things in here that... But here, here it is. Okay, the victory of reason, page 18. But in the end, all they achieved, the Greeks and the Romans was non-empirical, even anti-empirical, speculative philosophies, atheoretical collections of facts, and isolated crafts and technologies never breaking through to real science. Okay, now we've just gone over the history of ancient science. I know that statement is just completely the opposite Bullshit, yes. Um, Okay, now, so already we know, we could just throw the book away right now, right? Right. So his whole thesis (laughs) of his book is based on this sentence, right? right? I mean, the whole book. I mean, the whole book is about... The rise of modern science. I and mean, we won't even need to read the medieval and the modern stuff because already that he requires this premise about the ancient world to be true right. for the rest of the book. To and be... it's false. We've yeah, yeah, just so... demonstrated that it's false. So we can toss the book now. But um, the, the, I'm so got, the fact I'm actually that glad needs to, to be explained it. doesn't exist, right? But he also gives explanations for this non-existent Yeah, fact. that's
0: why I kept telling you to borrow it to read <laughs> rather
1: than buy you. It. <laughs> but it's important to know that, that not only is the fact itself false, but but now he's proposing, as if they were factually true, explanations of this fact that isn't true which is right. kind of funny But he, and I'll just read this paragraph where he summarizes the three reasons uh, this is page 18 there were three reasons for this first, Greek conceptions of the gods were inadequate to allow them to serve as conscious creators second, the Greeks conceived of the universe as not only eternal and uncreated but as locked into endless cycles of progress and
0: thinking you now right there he obviously didn't read Epicurus
1: <laughs> <laughs> and third Prompted by defining various heavenly bodies as actual gods, the Greeks transformed inanimate objects into living creatures capable of aims, emotions, and desires, Thus, short-circuiting the search for physical theory. Um, okay, now, each one of these three explanations is also entirely false. Yes. And the exact opposite of the truth. Uh, shocking. Again, I was shocked. I was, like, totally shocked. I mean, oh, my God. How could he possibly? Did maybe, he not this, check? maybe this
2: book is actually a spoof, and you're just wasting your time.
1: <laughs> That's, wasn't that what they said about Ann Coulter's book? It's like, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, let's do the first one. Let's see. Uh, yeah. Greek conceptions of the gods were inadequate to allow them to serve as conscious creators. His, his, here's the logical argument. They didn't have conscious creators. You can only have science if you believe in a conscious creator. Therefore, you they didn't have science. Of course, we already know the <laughs> conclusion is false. So we know one of the two premises is mm-hmm. false. <laughs> and maybe both of them. Maybe both of them. Uh, but uh, it really, it is the non-secretary because you don't need a creator. You don't need a, a theology of creation to believe in a rational order capable of explanation. To give you an example, Strato argued that there is no God. There's only nature. Mm-hmm clearly a sort of atheistic view, nature is God, but it wasn't an intelligent being. It was basically a system of fixed forces and properties. Right, Spinozian pantheism. Right, right. It's like things have a certain nature, and when you throw them together with those natures, you get a certain result, period. And the point is is that once he eliminated God, the order of the world is already self-evident, so you need to explain it. So if you don't have Mm -hmm. a creator, what's the explanation? Obvious places to look is properties and forces, inevitable yep. fixed nature of things. Right, and anyone who's Which ever done science. baking
0: knows that <laughs> <What>? <laughs> anyone who's ever done baking has the rudiments to do that.
1: That's right, yeah, exactly. Uh, so clearly you don't need to create, I mean, you could be a complete atheist. In fact, your atheism can actually inspire you to do science, because now you have to explain right. the facts of the world because in terms of natural someone's forces mind. and right. properties, so you have to actually study nature. So that's, I mean, it's a non-sequitur from the start. But it's also factually false because Galen, for example, there were actual creationists of the time. Like Galen didn't necessarily believe in a specific event of creation, but he believed that the rational order and organization in the world was inspired by the spirit and mind of God. Right. And he saw, for example, anatomy. He, he argued that, well, look, the human body begins as an egg and builds into this complex fetus and into this person. That's, and he, he wrote, wrote this book called On the Use of the Parts. It's this massive encyclopedia of the anatomy of the human body. From literally fingernails to, I mean, every part of the body, inside and out, complete. I mean, it's a tour de force. This thing is the most phenomenal work of anatomical science ever written until, you know, the, the scientific revolution. Fantastic work. The whole thesis of which was this thing is so vastly complex that clearly it had to be intelligently designed. So it's, it's really – it's one of the mm-hmm. most scientific best arguments ever made for intelligent design. Right. Uh, and, and in his time, it was a good argument. It, just like geocentrism – Made more sense then than mm-hmm. heliocentrism right Intelli- intelligent design as' going as
0: Richard Dawkins point points out and several other, and Daniel Dennett mm-hmm, and several right. other philosophers of science until Darwin, intelligent design is the most rational explanation because there is no known natural mechanism that can produce variety from
1: yeah so, so his theory was he had a theory of like DNA, uh, but the DNA was basically the mind of God acting on matter essentially. Mm. But the point is, is he didn't have a fixed creator creating out of nothing six thousand years right. ago. He had what what he would be called progressive an, creation, that's right? Yeah, an, an active intellect building bodies. And things. Right. But it's the same thing, and it inspired him to do this vast, complex, brilliant science. So, I mean, already, so here the facts are wrong. I mean, they did have creation mm-hmm. concepts, um, and the logic is wrong. You don't need creation concepts anyway, right? <laughs> so that's the first of his three. Uh, Unfactual reasons for this non-existent fact. Um, The next one was, uh, let's see, what was it? Um, Oh, yes. Oh, I love this sentence. This is one of my favorites. On page 19 for his second reason for why the Greeks didn't have the science that, in fact, they had. Uh, In many ways, it is strange that the Greeks sought knowledge and technology at all, having rejected the idea of progress in favor of a never-ending cycle of being.
0: Now this is my question about this about this <laughs> how can a sociologist be so ignorant of economics <laughs> economics creates necessity for well, innovation he's, he's
1: relying on economic theories theorists of the ancient world that are also spreading myths about the ancient economy like Moses Finley and others that are completely wrong but are are sort of the textbooks that people go to now oh, even man. though they aren't the most recent Literature on the thing—they're the most well-known, and so everybody thinks, "Oh, Reed Finley—he he covers that." Right. Yes, well, Finley's it. But what, but what <laughs> the ancients thought about economics doesn't make a difference for how economics
0: actually works. Well, there's
1: that as well. But even the, the underlying fact is wrong—that they did have a lot of economic ideas that right. they claim not to have had. But uh, the first problem, again, we have a situation where the logic is wrong and the facts are wrong. Uh, he says, "Okay, they believe in the never-ending cycles of progress and decay, therefore they didn't believe in progress." But where's right, where's the d- error? Where's the right. logical error in this? Right. If there's
0: progress and, and
1: decay obviously progress, progress right? exactly if you're but in
3: Thomas between. Cahill makes the same
0: <laughs> argument in The Gift of the Jews he argues that the very idea of progress comes from monotheism mm. that mm. whether monotheism is true or not Monotheism gave us the paradigm by which we could mark time, yeah, man, because that's, that's just nonsense, be, because right? it posits a beginning, middle, and end of the world. Yeah, so it turns time into the linear rather than the circular. And but yet the seems... first
1: linear chronology was based on the Olympiads of the right. Greece, so. And it seems to me kind of to be able to pull that off.
0: He's comparing um, what he thinks Jewish monotheism was, which it wasn't right. monotheistic exactly. in that's the first place. Right? You're comparing what was a fairly sophisticated religion, to tribal hunter-gatherer animistic notions of death and rebirth that have survived in no civilization other than the Indian, past the point of cosmopolitanization.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, so the underlying logic is wrong because if you believe in cycles of progress and decay, you can be in a cycle of progress, and therefore you would believe in progress. Right. Already he's wrong on the logic, but even his facts are wrong, and this is where I'm most shocked. at. And this is another example where I said he's a lousy historian because he didn't actually check what other – he didn't actually check what the consensus And you said was. in
0: his defense, he's a sociologist, not right. a historian, but check, it shows now. Right.
1: He, he didn't do even the most rudimentary research you would expect from a college right.
0: student. Well, it's the first thing you're told in any history class in college. Do not use secondary sources right. when writing your papers.
1: Yeah. So the second thing related to this is that he has here to prove his point that they believed in endless cycles of pro- progress and decay um, – he quotes the ancients. Mm-hmm. However, when you look at his footnotes, I'm pretty sure you find that he doesn't actually list where these passages or quotes are. He quotes a scholar who's quoting So he didn't Aristotle check out the original context. Exactly. And, and, and here, it's embarrassing. Uh, let, me, let me just read this, and then I'll read the actual context of the thing. This is um, Stark, page 19 of Victory of Reason. Aristotle noted that, quote, The same ideas recur to men not once or twice, but over and over again. And in his politics, another book Aristotle wrote, he pointed out that everything has, quote, been invented several times over in the course of ages, or rather times without number, end quote. And since he was living in a golden age, as you were mentioning before, the levels of technology of his time were at the maximum attainable, precluding The way he's worded this and of course, the logic of his argument requires that he's a, he's attributing this belief to Aristotle. Right. That he's saying but, but, but that because of these two quotes, Aristotle believed that the levels of technology of his time were at the maximum attainable, precluding further progress. Right.
0: And the notion of the golden age wasn't developed until later, right. after Athens declined. That's right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another um, problem. But and he's also extending this to science because the same ideas recur to men not once or twice, but over and over again. And then uh, he quotes uh, one other passage of Aristotle that's not doesn't really support his point, but. These two quotes are the, the ones that – the only ones, the only actual primary evidence that he has that, to support his his point. Right. Um, so let's actually go and read Aristotle. <laughs> let's he do. he clearly did not do himself. Uh, his first passage, the same ideas recurred in men not once or twice but over and over again. Okay, here is the whole passage from Aristotle on the heavens, chapter 1, section 3, paragraph 270b. By the way, that's information you won't get from Stark's book. Here's the quote. <laughs> The reasons why the primary material is eternal and experiences neither increase nor decrease but remains ageless and unalterable and unaffected is clear from what we've said if one accepts the underlying principles. Our theory also appears to confirm observations and to be confirmed by them. What we learn through the senses is enough to convince us of this, at least within human certainty. For in the whole range of time past, down as far as our inherited memory reaches, no change appears to have taken place either in the whole scheme of heaven or in any of its own parts. Even the name handed down from our earliest ancestors on up to the current time seems based on the very idea we're talking about. For we must suppose the same idea comes to us not once or twice, but countless times. So for this reason, since the primary material is something other than earth, fire, air, and water, they call the highest place by the name ether, setting up an eponym for it from the fact that it always runs, quote-unquote, for an eternity of time. That's the actual context of the passage. So 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 he's not talking... Yeah. About anything like what Stark <laughs> no, implies he's talking no, about. No, not at all. First of all, but Aristotle They call specific- that quote mining, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's quote but, mining. But he isn't, the one note- he isn't the one who's done the quote mining. He's quoting another scholar who, who is basically lying to Stark. You know, not Second degree in- Berkeley, quote mining. Um, he's basically, uh, yeah, he's using someone who quote mined, not right. realizing they quote mined. <laughs> but he would have known they quote mined had he done his proper work and actually checked the original context. Okay, first of all, Aristotle in this passage is specifically referring to the use of extended empirical observation over time as evidence in support of a scientific fact, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, oh, oh, for all this time, no one has seen uh, anything change in the heavens, and here's this etymological proof that it's always been this way. So Mm -hmm. we we have, it's empirical evidence he's referring to in support of a scientific fact. And he says uh, the scientific theory that the outer space is made out of ether confirms observations and is confirmed by them. And so he's giving empirical evidence of this. Uh, And the the, the observational fact is that the outer heavens, the motions of the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, etc., have never changed in human memory. So he's empirically arguing for his theory to explain this observational fact, that the heaven has never changed, because it's a fundamentally different material than everything else. Now, he was wrong about this. Uh, In fact, he was refuted, as I mentioned before, by Hipparchus, who observed the supernova and realized, oh, things do change in the heavens. Right. And we have – there were several other treatises written attacking Aristotle's argument for the fifth element, for the ether, uh, against this idea that nothing changes in the heavens. So mm-hmm. we don't have any of these treatises. Um, oh, I, you want to hear another tragic story. Is Hipparchus wrote a treatise on gravity that also doesn't survive. Anyway. Oh, um, uh, see, I'm going to be all the treatise on gravity, mind you, mind you, that we have a quote from where he's talking about uh, a parabolic arcs. Uh, projectiles where Mm -hmm. it it goes up, it loses energy, loses energy, loses energy, then it zeroes out and and then it gains energy, energy, gains energy, and it it falls. So um, anyway, we don't have that book, but I would really, really, really like to read that book. Anyway. (laughs) I I don't know.
2: I've got so much shit in my basement right now. It's likely that I might have one of those (laughs) 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 ancient (laughs) lost documents. Wouldn't be too surprised. So you you would be I'll get around to looking for
0: it. See, if, If time machines ever do become possible, man, I'm going back to Alexandria and plundering. But
1: but here we have an example of progress being made by observational evidence against an observational argument using data that was acquired after Aristotle. So refuting everything Stark is talking about. We've got scientists Mm -hmm. gathering data after him refuting positions of Aristotle and everything. Um, And also Aristotle says that previous thinkers had probably deduced the same conclusion from the same observation and therefore they coined the word ether. So when he says that they thought of the same ideas over and over again, he says, well, the same people, they observe the same things and they came up with the same theories. Right. Well, duh. Yeah, yeah, obviously. So that's not a theory like – that has nothing he's to do with not, whether there can be progress. Right. He's
0: not saying that all <laughs> intellect is recapitulation.
1: Right, yeah. He's not even really talking about a cyclical uh, theory of history. Right. right either. I mean he does elsewhere, but it's – the periods of cycles are, are vast. Ah, uh, so clearly Stark never actually read the passage. But so let's look at the other one, the second one. Um, everything has been invented several times over in the course of ages, or rather, times without nu- number. He goes on to say, therefore, Aristotle believed that technology had right. done. Okay, this this one is especially humorous. Um, here's the actual passage from Aristotle, Politics, a title of a book that should have teed <laughs> you off immediately. <laughs> Chapter seven, section ten, paragraph thirteen twenty nine B, slightly abridged. I have here just all the essential points. It seems it is not a new or recent discovery among political philosophers that the state ought to be divided by class and have public meals. So we must suppose these and other things were discovered many times over a long period, or rather countless times, for it seems the necessities of life teach men what's useful in and of itself, while it is reasonable to expect an increasing refinement and improvement of those things established at the start." Therefore, one must rely on what has already been adequately discovered, but also attempt to seek out what remains to be discovered. All right. So he's just
2: talking about a very specific insight. He's not saying all knowledge. He's
1: making the theoretical (laughs) point that is
0: exactly contrary to what he's (laughs) being quoted as saying. First of
1: all, Aristotle is specifically referring to political organization, not technologies or scientific knowledge of any kind. Secondly, Aristotle is even more specifically, as you noted referring to two political inventions in particular, the development of a class system and of public meals, both of which he traces to, uh, and elsewhere he traces to long-past civilizations in Crete, Italy, and Egypt. Thirdly, he doesn't say these and other political structures were invented cyclically, or that no progress could be made, or had been made, uh, and fourthly, when he says these things have been reinvented many times, all he means is that necessity is the mother of an invention. In fact, he, yep. he actually says almost very that. you know Necessity is the mother of invention. And therefore, wherever certain necessity arises, we can expect to find men inventing what is necessary mm-hmm. to deal with it again and again. Duh. Yep. <laughs> and then fifth, as you pointed out, Aristotle immediately adds, nevertheless, <laughs> there are still things left to be discovered and we should look for them. Yep. Exactly the opposite I of what Stark would have I think nevertheless
2: to is one of those words that usually follows a mind
1: quote. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So in reality, Aristotle twice expresses his belief in progress. So uh, once certain necessities have been met with an appropriate political structure, it's reasonable, he says, and even obligatory, that civilization then make continual progress and improvement. So he's actually arguing for progress. Stark claims Aristotle's day current levels of technology were at the maximum attainable level. Now here he says, he attributes that belief to Aristotle, but later on he actually seems to say that there was no technological progress in the ancient world. Or, or implies something to that effect. Oh right, yeah, he says, yeah, isolated crafts and technologies, never breaking through to real science. Well, <laughs> well, I could put it this way. Um, even if Aristotle thought that, which we just discovered that he didn't think that, someone by the time of Hipparchus or Ptolemy or Galen clearly could not have anymore believed that because of all the technological progress that had occurred since Aristotle's time. Now, um, <laughs> I'm gonna give you the short list of inventions that occurred after Aristotle, but this time before the Roman Empire. And this, Mind you, this is the short list. It's inordinately long, <laughs> but it's the short list. All right. I'll just read it through it. I won't explain. I'll just read the list because the list is impressive. Okay, here we go. The list of things that were invented after Aristotle. The compound pulley, the pressing screw, the locking screw, the water screw, the piston and valve, the gear, the spring, the siphon, cogged and tooth gears gear trains and transmissions, gear driven chain belts and bucket chains, reduction gearing, worm and ratchet gears, the basic cam, the rack and pinion, many types of valve including the beveled spindle valve, steel yard scales, scissors, shears, the torsion catapult, the pneumatic bronze spring and automatic catapults, the water organ and keyboard by the way which goes with the water (laughs) organ, the cylinder and plunger pump, the reciprocating double force pump, Archimedes screw, the continuous peristatic water clock, the screw cutter, the terrestrial and aquatic odometers, conical and portable sundials, the cuckoo clock, the automatic door, the coin-operated vending machine, the geared crane, the swivel and boom, the densimeter, the parabolic mirror, the refraction cauterizer, the star globe, the star chart, the cartographic globe, maps and conical projection, the astrolabe, the armillary sphere, the astronomical computer, the planetarium, the diopter, the gimbal, the universal joint, the butt hinge, the water level, the mesolabe, the anemoscope, the thermoscope, the hydrometer, the volumetric table, the sphere lathe, the iron frame, saw, the miner's lamp, the pile driver, the catheter, the acoustic resonator, the garden fountain, the snorkel, the diving bell, the folding pocket knife, the screw press, the treadwheel pump, windlass, and crane, the locking pin, the bloating bolt, the railway, the latin sail, as well as the sprit sail, lug sail, and topsail, the roof truss, the arch, the barrel vault, the aqueduct, canal locks and sluice gates, concrete, the lighthouse, the donkey mill, the water mill, the wind pump, the stage elevator, and the seesaw pump with pressure nozzle and universal joint. Okay. <laughs> That was all invented after Aristotle, but before the Roman Empire, and mind you, is only a fraction of what I could have listed. Uh-huh. Now, here's a tinier fraction of what was then invented under the Roman Empire hydraulic concrete, the grappling harpoon, the middle frame inswinger catapult, the hippo sandal, the horseshoe, the four horned saddle, the dual beam vertical loom, the horizontal loom, the rotary lock otherwise known as a deadbolt the padlock the rotary padlock screw fasteners and threaded nuts and bolts folding chairs tables and lampstands artificially heated hothouses wheeled cold frames coiled pipe heat exchangers the hand-powered bread kneading machine the carpenter's plane the pantograph the rotating turret conical roller bearings the cylinder block force pump Soap, the chimneyed shaft furnace, the fish farm, the hypocaust, otherwise known as central heating, mm-hmm. the boiler room, blown glass, rolled glass window planes... double glazing, uh, double glazing frosted glass, the swing frame window, the suction cup, the piston syringe and retractable needle syringe, public clock towers, municipal maps, the screw and gear speculum, the dental drill, the bone setting machine, the water powered sawmill, the mechanized ore mill, the automated hammer, the ox powered harvester, the grafting drill and the heavy wheeled plow. Okay, did that's you just say a dental drill? The dental drill, yes. Yeah. Are you kidding me? No. Well, hand, hand, wow. hand turned. Yeah, but that yeah, like was, a hand, was,
0: like in your
2: mouth. Yes, yes, like okay. a little tiny drill that was what, hand what, turned. What was used in Sweet the U.S. Jesus. Up until the 30s, really? Probably, gone, yeah, right? I would imagine. That's scary. Sorry, I just <laughs> hand oh yeah, there's a lot of drill on your
1: tooth. <laughs> <laughs> I I did a uh, I gave a talk on um, Ask a Scientist in San Francisco. They have this thing called Ask a Scientist where they have a scientist come in and. Give a little lecture about what he does, and then the audience layman could just ask questions about it. And and I gave the ancient science talk, mm-hmm. and I, I I end it because I always love ending it with things like this. I ended it first with the, the I mentioned the gear screw speculum, which is a basically a, a speculum for you know gynecological right. examinations, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's this big bronze yeah. instrument. It's very it's brilliantly crafted. It's a very it's very you know a well made mm-hmm. uh, piece of machinery, but it's very scary because right. I tell women what it is and they're like. <laughs> But well, then yeah, I but, guess I should have been complaining about the tooth one. Yeah. Well, Well, what I follow it with, though, is a bronze catheter. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, a bronze what? Catheter. catheter. A catheter, it's basically a bronze tube that you shove up your penis up into the kidneys bladder, yeah. so that you can basically pee. Um, right, if you've got a bladder infection. If you've got a bladder infection or swollen uh, And it's very convenient and an easy to hear I bet. <laughs> Uh, Just yeah,
2: slide it up your penis. It's oh. that simple, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's that <enough>. simple. <laughs> it's bad enough when it's flexible. And no and local running. anesthetic, oh. I dare, I'm afraid.
1: Um, they yeah. had alcohol. They had alcohol. They had opiates. And opiates, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they didn't have proper anesthesia, but they had ways to knock you out. <laughs> but still. <laughs> A club. Yeah. That was also invented then. Anyway, the point is, um, clearly there was technological progress of considerable sorts. And even if Aristotle believed there was none... Which he didn't. <laughs> the people after him, people certainly, after him certainly wouldn't certainly have bought did. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's one. Okay, so that's, that's the second. I'll, I'll remind you, we're talking about the three explanations he gave for this non-existent fact that they didn't have science. Uh, the first was they didn't have a creator. We found that ridiculous. The second was they believed in cyclic history, which is nonsense. Uh, and then the third is, um, oh, yes, um, heavenly bodies as actual gods capable of aims, emotions, and desires. Yeah, This then, is another funny there's, one.
0: there's a big difference between naming a planet in honor of the god <laughs> and thinking the planet is the god. Though there were some Gnostics evidently who did well, believe.
1: Well, um, even the Platonists argued that they had souls. But mind you, they also they also said that magnets had souls. That's why they draw right. things to them. But they're not saying what Stark is saying. They're not saying that, that uh, planets are just really needly animals that just wander wherever they want. you right. know, Quite the contrary, exactly the contrary. Plato specifically said we need to find out the laws and principles that describe the motions of the planets. Mm-hmm. Clearly he was calling for scientific progress in astronomy right. to and, understand and the, yeah. p- the, 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 the fixed idea, motions of the, the planets. The idea that
0: the sun is actually Apollo's chariot is something that comes from Homer's era, <laughs> right. not well, from
1: Aristotle's yeah. era. But even Plato, who thought that the planets were animated by souls, right. that doctrine did not impede science for him. To the contrary, he fully believed in the was of the planets for, and wanted right, yeah. progress made in this subject. So even – again, the logic of it is wrong. If, even if mm-hmm. you believe what he says they believed, it doesn't and, entail – And the facts that he's coming yeah. from are wrong as well. I also find it amusing too that certainly animals and humans also have souls and yet you can study them scientifically. So why would he think that <laughs> – uh, Yeah, there is that. <laughs> anyway um, – yeah. But let, here, let's, let me read what he says here on page 20. But if mineral objects are animate, oh, no. one heads in the wrong direction in attempting to explain natural phenomena. The causes of the motion of objects, for example, will be ascribed to motives. His emphasis. <laughs> yep. Not to natural forces. The Stoics, particularly Zeno, may have originated the idea of explaining the operations of the cosmos on the basis of its conscious purposes. But this soon became the universal view. Thus, according to Aristotle... Mind you, he's gone from Zeno back in time to Aristotle anyway. Uh, Thus, according to Aristotle, celestial bodies move in circles because of their affection for this action, and objects fall to the ground, quote, because of their innate love for the center of the world, end quote. I'll take these in reverse order here. Yeah. That quote doesn't come from Aristotle interestingly enough. It's yeah, a you, quote you, from Yaki. Yeah, if you, look at the, you, you have to look at the footnotes to find out <laughs> yeah. because he implies that it's from Aristotle. The sad thing is, is that's the argument that Aristotle argues against. against. That's actually the view yeah. uh, of, of objects of magnetism and gravity that Empedocles advanced, and Aristotle specifically argues against it in his treatise On the Heavens where he's arguing that if fixed forces and principles do so, that, that things move according to their innate natures. So if you understand their innate natures, you'll understand why and how they move. Which is science, right? Right. So, the irony is he makes it look like Aristotle said this when, in reality, that's the thing Aristotle was arguing against and abandoning, and therefore setting the stage for all future scientific right. progress. But in the it's what world. Yaki is saying that yeah. Aristotle said. I, I you know I didn't check to see that, but yeah, I wouldn't okay. be surprised because Yaki makes uh, says a lot of bullshit like that. Yeah. Okay. So that's nonsense. The Zeno thing. The, the Stoics. This is especially ironic that the Stoics were some of the leading scientific. Uh, minds interested in understanding the fixed forces and principles in the universe they instead of saying that motives caused things, mm-hmm. they were actually talking about well, you know when the moon because uh, the, they they were big fans of the lunar solar tide theory because it helped right. them support astrology because if the moon and the sun could affect things on earth, they could obviously but affect yeah, your and they yeah they were right. studying things like how shellfish uh, change in volume with the positions of the moon wow uh, that's and, very yeah, subtle so they're for doing' the time. Lot, they're doing lots, which is true, and they're doing a lot of things like this. To support their theory that there were fixed forces acting on the world. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they're doing science, so this stuff about Stoics is complete nonsense. No. Uh, and, yeah, so and, and and again, the, that worldview he's ascribing to them
0: is one that only operates in very primitive animistic cultures. Yeah,
1: truly. And even to the extent that the Stoics explained everything as the acts of God. For example, Mm -hmm. they they had a theory of, they had a pneumatology, had a theory of the Holy Spirit that's very similar to what the Christians adopted, Mm -hmm. which is that God's Holy Spirit permeates the whole universe and it's the force that binds everything together and makes everything go the way it does. You sound like Yoda. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's very much like that. Um, uh, And, but, they didn't take this as saying that, well, God just capriciously makes things happen so there's no point in studying it. They did the exact opposite conclusion where they said, well, obviously God's going to work in one specific way the best way Right, because it. he's perfect. Right, right. So for them, they're just saying that the laws of physics are the ways – they didn't use the term laws of physics. But right. the, the laws of physics are the way God's rational mind makes things go. Right, so which we is can exactly study. the
0: argument that yeah. theologians have made since the 18th right. century. So
1: we can actually study why things be- – the fixed mm-hmm. ways things behave and therefore science is a possible – Science is actually possible because it's completely right. rational, because so it's So in other words, the they had
0: the kind of precursory religious worldview right. that Stark is saying they didn't and needed.
1: Truly, yeah, exactly. But, and yet, again, I'll reemphasize that you didn't need it in the ancient right. world. Even if you were an atheist, you still had to explain why things go the way they do. In a right, fixed, in and, and that's borne out brilliantly by Epicurus. Yeah, Who was was an avowat atheist. It's interesting, though, that Epicureanism was, in some respects, an anti-scientific philosophy. Really? Um, It's it's ironic. I haven't
0: studied Epicureanism as it came after. It's very very ironic
1: because Epicurus started with a worldview and deduced explanations of things Mm -hmm. very empirically, correct? It is empirical, but it's not scientifically empirical. And it is very a priori. You start with the basic right. principles and then say, how could I explain this with the basic principles? Right. And you make it work. And he was open to the idea that you could have multiple explanations and not know which is correct. As long as you have right. an explanation, you're good to go, um, which is not very scientific. But right. um, th- I- ironically, with his system, he got more predictions right as to what would end up being true scientifically mm-hmm. right. than the Stoics did. Whereas the Stoics had the more correct scientific methodology. Their, their methodology... But they started with a less brilliant right. guy. Well, so no. They... <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, no. They, they took the scientific epistemology... And used it to bolster sciences like uh, astrology and divination. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so they were supporting non-existent sciences with, with the, the correct scientific method. <laughs> Whereas Epicurus <laughs> was, cr- was, was supporting was the, deducing deducing the correct conclusions with, the conclusions incorrect with an incorrect <laughs> method. Yeah. Oh boy. But nevertheless, it was uh, this, the irony. Yeah, it was the, the Stoics. <laughs> but the Stoic ideas influenced a lot of scientists at the time, and so did the Epicurean ideas. So right. scientists were working. They're playing both fields. They're getting ideas mm-hmm. from both. Anyway, so it's just – this is all complete nonsense. So that that pretty much kills the three explanations that he has for this otherwise non-existent fact <laughs> of the ancient world. But, but the irony is, though, I mean like I said before, his whole book – in fact, both these books really uh, – Well,
0: it's ver- – everything you've been reading out of there is verbatim in yeah, the other Yeah, Oh yeah,
1: I know that. Um, but I mean the overall thesis of the books oh, okay. is a little different. He he borrows the same material but because each book requires this premise to be true. But the premise is so fantastically false that it's right. – it's it's embarrassing. So, <laughs> so that's that's basically what I wanted to rant about. Well, I think we can consider Stark put to bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if si this Stark.
0: came over kind of middle of the road, I was going to invite him on to refute. Eh? But I mean,
3: no, no there's
1: um, no point. There really isn't. It, it's interesting because, like I said, I'll reiterate, reiterate. I don't think he's, I don't think he's being devious. I think he's just being Dumb, misled. Right. And he's not acting like a historian. He he's he thinks that he just needs to read one book, like Yaki's book, and he's done. Right. So that's endemic for sociologists. I mean, it's Is one it of really? I, I wonder. well, it's one, one of the problems with,
0: with Joseph Campbell. Who you know, I mm, love his work, right. but he was not very um, scrupulous about multiple sources until very late in his life. Right. Yeah. And so a lot of the generalizations he makes, trying to advance his monomyth theory. Mm-hmm. Generalized to the point of being false, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I still recommend them to people, but with a heavy caveat. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Well, you modern know? myth theory is is advanced a lot since his day, yeah. actually. But um, yeah, so I mean, I, I so I don't think I think Rodney stroke if he knew these facts, he he might deny them at first, thinking that we're making all this shit up. But uh, but once he saw the evidence mm-hmm. he would go oh okay oh, i was totally wrong about that we'll have to... he, he might try to rescue his theory by going back to the sources and reading right. everything and saying well can i make my theory still fit when this comes out we ought to email him a copy of the show <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah um i mean ideally uh you'd I'd want to send him a copy of my book when it comes out because the the book, when it does come out, maybe 2009 or 2010.
2: And it doesn't sound like this guy is like a religious nut or something like that. um, He's pretty legit when it comes to a lot of other... He he is a
1: believer. Uh, He was an agnostic for most of his life. Uh, Around 2005 or 2006, he converted to Catholicism. Uh, He now teaches at Baylor, so uh, Mm -hmm. Christian university. Um, So he's very Christian. He's always been very conservative, even when he was an agnostic. Really? more conservative politically. Um, and, and so now I think he finds Catholicism comfortable. He even said in an interview that he – one of the reasons he came to Catholicism was his study of the history of science and how Christianity oh, wow. was responsible for the so origin he, of science. Oh so boy. there could be a bit of cognitive dissonance there that I'm a yeah. little worried about. Um <laughs> But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> I, I find him generally sincere, uh, mm-hmm. unlike some others, like I think Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, oh, D'Souza's a demagogue. DeSouza. Is it, it Dinesh D'Souza? Yeah, Dinesh D'Souza. Oh, and yeah.
0: he's he's really frustrating because when he writes was... in his subject area, which mm-hmm. is economic theory. Again, subject area. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. He's lucid. He's scrupulous. Yeah, and that's where I knew him from. Right, right. And then he starts coming out with, the, with the, his last two or three books, which are apologetic treatises. Yeah, yeah. And it I've is heard his debates. It's staggering example of demagoguery I've seen in
1: a while. Yeah, but D'Souza, I, I find him to be insincere. Yeah. Mean, from what I've seen I, of his debates, I find it hard to believe that he can actually believe half the things yeah, he says. Yeah,
0: I, I really – and and knowing <clears throat> knowing how sharp the guy is and what his education is. I mean, he's got an Ivy League education. He's yeah, got oh, – I, sure, yeah. he, I think he pulled a PhD, but I'm not sure – but I mean, knowing how sharp the guy is, he cannot believe half the shit he's it's got Right, and that, that's got- why it's infuriating. It's, it's yeah. like he's mocking you. I mean, yeah. I'm <laughs> sitting at the other end of this but, thing. But there has there has to be an element of pious
1: fraud going. On. Yeah. What, what were you saying, Danny? Yeah. Sorry.
2: I, I'm just like I listen to him, and I don't feel like I'm just getting fed bullshit. I feel like I'm being purposely fed bullshit from this guy who knows it's bullshit, and it makes me so much more mad. And
1: yeah. I,
2: I, I don't think I'll ever pick up one of his books cuz I can't even finish one of his debates.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I said yeah, if, if someone ever mouth. scheduled a debate with me, that I'm not buying his book that they have to buy me the book and send it <laughs> to him. Um, but yeah, yeah. Oh. But I, I, and I will only debate him on this this what we've talked about today, the, right. his theory that Yeah, uh, you got to you got to keep it narrow. Things. Well, yeah. on, on my field because I, yeah. I think that's right. where I can completely and decisively mm-hmm. prove that he's so yeah, it's, fantastically and it's, wrong.
0: They, probably the best debate I've ever seen of him was when he went up against Peter Singer on the subject of ethics. Interesting. yeah, um, which, that which he did at Biola the, last summer mm-hmm. because Peter Singer managed to keep him to the topic. Yeah. And I mean <laughs> – I've got my issues with Singer, yeah. which I've gone on about yeah. at length, but as the I, man is a fabulous ethicist <clears throat> and a very good thinker. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the kind of person it's a pleasure to disagree with because he's very clear about his arguments. Right. I'd be yeah. interested to hear that debate. It's on YouTube. Well, to YouTube I go.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. There might be more stuff on YouTube now. I've noticed there's lots of good stuff showing up. There. Yeah, Singer discussion
0: And that's it for our discussion on ancient science with Richard Carrier. He will be on at least one more time this season, talking about various things in his subject area. In the meantime, if you want to hear or read more of his stuff, you can find his books, Sense and Goodness Without God, a uh, pocket worldview on Amazon.com, as well as his brand new book, Not the Impossible Faith, An Inquiry into Christian Origins. He has another book on ancient science coming out very soon, and um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to have him on to talk about that when it's out then. I'm in a hurry here and on kind of a crappy mic, as you can hear, so I'm going to let you go. For the Polyschismatic Reprobate Tower, this is Dan the Demented and Richard Carrier and Danny Shade saying, Get your mind out of the sewer. We want to be alone. The Poly Schismatic Reprobate Tower is produced at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California, and is mixed by Kitty Nakian. This program and its contents are copyright 2009 Artistic Whispers Productions and are distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license.
2: In a world where zombies and humans coexist, if it wasn't for the government, none of this would be happening. We'd all be wiped out. Dead and gone, and that's the kind of world I'd rather be living in. And clones are used for food. The first time I saw myself being eaten, words cannot describe what was going through my mind. One man will do the unthinkable. I'm going to help the next one escape. And uncover a secret that will change our world forever. That's insane. Why on earth would you want to do that? The Zombie Chronicles. The first ever full-length podcast fiction novel by James Melzer. Let me tell you something. When you see a 6-foot, 2-inch, 250-pound reanimated corpse come at you wearing nothing but a football helmet and is rotting schlong bouncing from side to side, you run. Now casting at www.jamesmelzer.net. Somewhere in the bottomless pit of my memory, the
3: scream is still going. (laughs)